You are listening to part two of the FuturePod interview with Richard Slaughter. Richard, as you make sense of what's happening around us, what are you seeing and what's energising your thinking about emerging futures and possible futures that you see? Well, as we speak, I've started work on a piece that I've called Farewell Alternative Futures, which is in a way meant to be a bit provocative to get people thinking what on earth does he mean getting rid of alternatives that's surely that's the major point of the whole thing but set against that I've had the sense developing in my own mind in recent times that more and more of the futures inquiry work that I've seen are having to are are being forced to deal with certain uh, concerns in the world that are impinging themselves upon humanity's attention, like it or not. And that part of the uh, consequence of that is that alternatives as, as we have left, which I think are less than they were, that we're looking at, are pretty much like the present, but steadily deteriorating. And that's a very challenging outlook. The, the forces shaping the world, shaping the future, are really forces over which humanity has less and less control, manifestly uh, less and less control. But there are a couple of structural problems as well. One is that if you think about the interior qualities of individuals and how we all develop through a process of learning, go through stages of development, reach the end of our lives, recapitulate again with the next generation, how this process repeats itself with many variations over over millennia, whereas the technological infrastructure, which we're increasingly embedded, is not like that. It doesn't evolve that way. It evolves as one a platform of doing things is superseded by another platform, smaller, lighter, more powerful. And I think that's got us into a real difficulty because without being clear about that, it's difficult to be realistic about controlling these massive new powers that have come on stream. The, the second thing is that it's perfectly clear now that the global system is shifting out of the what the geologists call the Holocene period. This is a relatively stable period of, of um, geological Earth history where the world's environment moved between warm periods and ice ages, warm periods and ice ages. Looking at, looking at it over a massively long period of time, it looks like the Earth's breathing because the graph goes up and down, up and down. But now, since um, really, particularly since the Second World War, the term that has cropped up that seems to describe what's happened best is the Great Acceleration. Because whatever graph you like to look at, you find uh, human activities rising rapidly, and then with a delay, you find Earth system changes also rising rapidly, not in exactly the same way, but they're also going up. So you look at energy use, you look at fertilizer use, you look at power of computers, look at land use changes, look at population growth, look at economies, and plot those on the graphs. They, they go through the roof. 
This is an issue which our culture and civilization is having massive difficulty in coming to grips with. First of all, to acknowledge, which is the first step that not every entity is willing to take, and then secondly, to actively deal with. The problem there, as I see it, is that this generation is being challenged to change in ways that probably never existed before in history, except possibly at those times of collapse when previous civilizations did in fact fall over. So what we're looking at really is a near-term future that's increasingly constrained by the interaction of these two sets of forces and others, but not really within the purview, not really consciously brought to mind by all but a few scientists and a few people who look at this stuff. The International Panel on Climate Change just fired off another attempt to persuade the political economic world that we need to stay under one degree, 1.5 degrees over the next decades, otherwise we're going to risk environmental mayhem. But the pushback is always there. So it's not that we can't deal with these things, it's that we haven't over this period achieved the capacity within our societies to take them seriously and then to, to deal with them. And as a consequence of that, I think that the futures profession, the futures story, the futures enterprise is itself challenged because it's one thing to stand as people did in the 60s, 70s, 80s and say, look, you want a certain sort of future, you want a really green future, get together with green people, work on it. You can actually work towards your goals and we can't promise you'll get 100% there, but you'll make some leeway, you'll make some change. That was the implicit promise. I honestly don't think that promise is viable anymore because I don't see the wherewithal in place to, to deal with these structural forces. So dealing with that, I think, dealing with that well, dealing with that in a coherent and useful way is, I think, the big challenge facing our time. Yeah, I think certainly one of the things that I was teaching to in the classroom was trying to introduce this notion of descent futures or futures that because even the 60s 70s notions of you can have a variation of whatever future you want to some extent are still based upon there always being more yes and the limits to growth and others tell us that well yeah maybe there's a possibility of a future that's continued on more through technology but what about one where it's less and it's not necessarily the end of the world dystopia, but it's some sort of constraint future. I mean, what do you say to... And, and, and to some extent, the field hasn't necessarily got a literature and an imagery and concepts around that. Yes, well, it refers back to some work that uh, Josh Floyd and I did a few years ago where we put together a special issue of Foresight on descent futures or descent pathways because it very clearly, if you can understand these changes and get a handle on what's happening it is the promise then becomes that you can moderate some of these processes because you're aware of them previous civilizations didn't have that information that's one thing that we do have so the the idea is that by actually bringing them into consciousness by admitting acknowledging and understanding it, it is possible to moderate the uh, the process of decline rather than just reaching a whole series of it's not one, but a whole series of cliff edges and various bits of systems falling off or collapsing. Again, this is challenging. It is 
against the narrative that has driven civilization for a very long time. And it's a big ask to get people to think about it. But the idea would be to actually wind down and even start reversing some of the major trends that have impacted the global system to this point and begin to nest ourselves within those great systems rather than thinking that we can expand without limit and they'll keep going. Richard, how do you talk to people about foresight and futures if they aren't necessarily aware of what it is? Well, the first thing I do is listen, and in some cases I don't. <laughs> but where I think there's an opening or some point in doing so, I might just say something simple like forward-looking equivalent of history. History is about where we've come from, futures is about where we may be going, and it's that simple. Other people, I might describe it as very long-range planning, knowing that that's not really my term but it might it's more understandable or I might talk a little bit about foresight and about how that works and the loop of scanning acting feedback uh, depending on who I'm talking to but I, I do believe it is important if possible to to describe foresight as a vital modality of human functioning human existence you can ask people you know if you didn't use it how would this or that work out? You know, how how would you know um, what shopping to do if you haven't got some idea of what what cooking you're planning to do that week, or um, you're thinking about taking a course? Is there a job that's attached to the course? Um, is there a profession? So always this is in the back of our minds. If I get the chance, which doesn't happen very often, I might go back and quote people. One person I found really handy was a a guy called Gerard. Edelman, who some years ago wrote a book called Bright Air, Brilliant Fire, as a neuroscientist. And I loved his quote, the freeing of parts of conscious thought from the constraints of the immediate present and the increased richness of social communication allow for the anticipation of future states and for planned behavior. With that ability come the abilities to model the world to make explicit comparisons and to weigh outcomes. So that's an insight from the early 90s. Neuroscience has obviously developed since then. And just uh, in the most recent issue, or one of the most recent issues of Scientific American, a special issue on just called humans, there's another piece of research which is uh, really up to date where uh, a chap called Thomas Suddendorf has try to depict what, in his view, looking at all the evidence available, helped to cause the human mind to emerge into its uh, current stage of capability from earlier, simpler ones. And he talked about two key features, uh, as he put it, create, helping to create the human mind. One, interestingly enough, was he called this, this is his language, nested scenario building. And uh, the other was the urge to connect. He called these two transformative traits that emerged years ago, centuries ago, in our species. And what the way he described nested scenario building is this. He said, it allows us to imagine several alternative situations, some with different outcomes, 
and embed them into a larger narrative of connected events. This chap's probably never heard of futures. He's got no interest in promoting it. He's an evolutionary person looking at structures of the human mind. So when I read that, I thought, well, it is perfectly clear by this stage that foresight, forward thinking, is not only part of the human inheritance, it's part of what makes us who we are. And isn't it interesting that a certain limited use has been made of this capacity, particularly on the part of, and I'll use the word corporates because it has come up recently in a bibliographic study of where the bulk of futures work has been done, that in, in corporate contexts in particular, it's used in certain stereotyped, limited ways to further existing interests. And the struggle, if you like to put it in that way, is to have it seen as being a modality available to everyone for every purpose, including those that are concerned about where our culture and civilization are going. So it's not something we have to argue for. It's not something we have to prove. It's something that is manifestly there and only being partially used, which I think is it puts us in a different ball game to saying, uh, what, why don't you think about futures? You already do. It's just a question of building on that. Yeah, I mean, the thing around the cognitive science, which, of course, I looked at in the PhD under your supervision, was it's a function, but what we are capable of doing as humans is to look at the ethical basis of the actions resulting from it. Exactly. And so this becomes, I think, the very human notion, and for me the foresight dimension is to say, well, yes, we can imagine to create a future, but is is that the future that we wish to create? Or we wish to be complicit in allowing to be created. Richard, the last question we pose is an open question, and so you've you've asked me, or you have raised a question that you wish to address. So your question is, how to live in a world that's on the edge of disaster? Well, you see, I'm really good at choosing simple questions to, to answer, so this is a good example. Okay, I don't think it's as bad as it sounds, because the human race has been through countless disasters, and at some, at some deep level... Our forebears have experienced that. And so there is a sense there's an archaic sense of dealing with this stuff that maybe needs to come a little further up towards uh, the consciousness. But anyway, I guess it's useful to start with the question, how did we get to this? So I think it's a mistake to stand in the now and just look forward and speculate. It's always got to be grounded, as we, as we know. So a view going back over at least decades, but preferably centuries, at the rise of humanity on the planet and learning, for example, that the the rise of farming a long, long time ago seems to have actually moderated an ice age. That kind of thinking that already, at an early stage, multiple effects of human activity were already there appearing in the, in the record that was only seen later, of course. So... Without getting into too much depth on this, coming right back to our time, there are all sorts of human factors involved. I I think they're covered under the integral label. But I think one thing that I'd like to be really clear about in relation to the last few decades is the the very many ways that the, the neoliberal project 
has both worked very hard and successfully to create a lot of aspects of the world we are now in, and at the same time to close off and neutralize so many options for adaptation and change. I became very aware of this when I was working on the biggest wake-up call in history because there were times and places when somebody in prominence or authority put to a population or a group, do you not think this is time to reassess where we're going and change course? Now, I'm not a big fan necessarily of President Jimmy Carter, but I have to say that there were two occasions when uh, Carter addressed the country along these lines. He was basically asking Americans to think again about the trajectory they were on with bigger cars, more affluence, more growth, and invited them to think about how it could be otherwise. But their collective choice, and I, I know I'm simplifying here, was to elect Reagan. And we all know what happened through the Reagan and Thatcher years. That set up our societies for a particular way of doing things. So what that meant is that many of the uh, of the environmental innovations of the of the 60s 70s 80s were really one way to put it blown away by the headwind created by another way of viewing the world that it was just so difficult for them to get up to get uh, legitimated get funded become active like uh, the sierra club things like that uh, in the states that was fairly conservative but at the end of the day, we can say we have to say, I think we have to admit that the environmental movement was not able to fulfill the major goals it set out for itself. It did some good things, uh, national parks in the US and elsewhere, um, all kinds of uh, small scale innovations, but it wasn't strong enough, big enough, well enough supported, rich enough to moderate the kind of trends towards growth, consumption and overuse of the global environment that has in fact followed. So the thing to bear in mind with this though is that during the early days uh, post-war it actually took a lot of time and effort for that worldview to be to be established and I think the same is true now. It'll take time and effort to get a change of worldview established and the same amount of effort that they put in then post-war to get where we are now is what we need to put in. It has to be a widespread project undertaken by actors that are powerful enough, durable enough to make something happen. Now, I don't want to get too deeply into neoliberal stuff, but there are indications that the worldview is failing because of inequality and the damage around the edges, unsolvable issues that are around. But we are still waiting, as it were, for a new pattern, a new coherent account of how we should be running our societies and economies. Very recently, there have been some excellent books about the finances and the economy that are being published, which show me that we're on the en route to getting a much more adequate, honest and useful way of understanding this stuff in place. But it's not going to be rushed. It will take time. So the upshot is there's still many choices to be made, strategies to be pursued. Some people talk about uh, degrowth. We're talking about descent pathways. There are many choices that are available to us that can at the very least help certain people, certain places, certain cultures to avoid a hard landing, by which I mean 
having to live through a, a breakdown of environment or eco economy or both. One of the things here which needs doing, very few people it seems to me have paid attention to this, apart from one or two outstanding authors, is that modes of breakdown and collapse need to be better understood. I mean, if we're going into this difficult period, why not get really sharp and clear about some of the dynamic and the role of future discounting? Another thing I'd like to see is uh, the greater use of material from the human and social interiors or the left-hand quadrants brought into discussions about technology and planning and cities and cars and all the other stuff. Because at the moment, they just barely appear, even though we've known about this for ages. Underlying that is the, the quest for world-centric worldviews. Really, to get through this, that's what we're going to need. Without a world-centric worldview, you're just not thinking and acting on the required scale. A lot of people are looking at the issue of hope, and that's good. But I think it's important not to mistake hope for action. It's great to have, have hope, a really helpful step, but it's not that useful unless it leads on to action, in my view. So there's much to be optimistic about with progressive developments around us. In Australia, there's the New Economy Network, NINA. I'm interested in rolling back, providing the grounds for rolling back the power and the influence of the internet oligarchs. They've been let rip when they needed a lot more oversight and to some extent uh, control. The, the Americans did that with uh, Microsoft. They did it with the Bell Telephone Company, had the what was called antitrust regulations in place. They took away those regulations. And that is one of the many reasons why we have these world-spanning entities that are not doing us any good at all. Lots of things to do. Renewable energy, I could go on and on. But I think my final thing I want to say is... Yes, we are living in a world on the edge of disaster. That's true. But also, there's a great deal of good news around, if you know where to find it. What's to stop people making some good news themselves? I mean, it really does come back to each of us individually. And the, last, the very last thing I'd like to say is that if necessity is the mother of invention, now is the time. Thanks for your time and coming and talking to the FuturePod community. I do appreciate it. It's been an absolute joy to talk to you. My pleasure, Peter, as always. This has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Peter Hayward saying goodbye for now.